Peace to you. Thank you for joining me for The Naked Truth, and welcome back if you haven't been with me before. We're going to pick up where we left off in the Old Testament since it's a weekday, and the book of 2 Kings, we're up to chapter 19. Let's begin with verse 1. So it was when King Hezekiah heard it that he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. Okay, so to talk about the people, King Hezekiah is the king ruling over the kingdom of Judah at this point. There's two kingdoms still at this point, kingdom of Israel and kingdom of Judah. Judah's the two tribes, and Israel is the other ten tribes, and they're two different kingdoms. But Hezekiah is the king over um, the, and reigning in the area of Jerusalem as its capital city. Um, and the news that he's upset about is that the king of Assyria has um, shown up to the city and, or to the people, to the kingdom, and made threats and basically told the people either surrender surrender to us or we're going to besiege you you're going to end up eating poop drinking pee and that's going to you're going to end up surviving if you want to call it surviving or you can surrender yourselves to the assyrian kingdom and um live how you're living comfortably until they get carried away captive and replaced with people from other areas that the assyrian kingdom has taken captive and have them living in your land that was the ultimatum given in the previous chapter. And it was upsetting to the people because um, it was said in the language they could understand in uh, Hebrew rather than the common language of the elites of um, Aramaic. Um, so this is what's upsetting King Hezekiah and why he's gone into the house of the Lord, as it's called, to um, uh, basically pray and cry out to God for help. And I'm saying God and the Lord because that's how it's written. But um, Lord here is being translated in English to Lord, as we've read before, from the word or name Jehovah or Yehovah, depending on how you want to pronounce it. But it's spelled with a J in English. So um, that's who's being identified as the Lord in this instance. And um, that's what's happening. So verse 2. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. So these same three people being sent are the same three who reported to King Hezekiah in the previous chapter what's going on with the Assyrians and the threats. So they're being sent to a, um, a prophet, a seer, as they're often called, uh, a holy person um, who's believed to be in touch with the divine. Um, and again, it's saying the Lord in English but it's who the people are interacting with in supernatural ways. In the same way, if something supernatural happened to you, you may think, oh, that must be God. It must be the Lord intervening in your life or some sort of um, something like that. But it may not be God or the Lord at all. It may be some other supernatural element at work, demons or other unexplained phenomenon. It could be lots of different things, but it's who the people are calling Lord throughout the Bible, with, but not one particular person or entity that's being identified as the Lord in English. But Isaiah is believed to be, it's the same Isaiah that the book of Isaiah is uh, in the Bible is, um, is, is being referred to here. Verse 3, oh, and so they're being sent with sackcloth also, because that's like a, a way of humbling themselves. A sackcloth would be basically like a potato sack like the cheapest fabric you can buy. It's nothing uh, extravagant. It's very much a humbling thing when people put on the sackcloth, just like when they put on sackcloth and ashes 
or like when they tear their clothes, it's a way of publicly showing how downtrodden people are feeling. Verse 3, and they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy, for the children have come to birth, but there's no strength to bring them forth. So the people who've been sent with the message have made it to Isaiah, and they're letting him know it's a it's been a bad day. They've had a bad day, like the song says, but um, and they're telling them that it's um, they're in expectation of great things, but there's no um, strength to bring forth those great things. They're basically looking for the holy man, the prophet Isaiah, to um, work on their behalf. Verse four: It may be that the Lord your God will hear all the words of the Rabshake, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. So notice how the uh, people who were sent, the messengers who were sent, are referring to the Lord as Isaiah's God, not their own. That, again, points to what I've been saying again and again and again. There's lots of different entities being worshipped as the Lord, even though it's not one individual entity that everyone is worshiping. And we've read again and again about the different um, uh, names that are given to the, um, the deities that people are worshiping, whether it's the Ashtaros, Asherah, Baal, whichever one, Jehovah. There's lots of different entities being worshiped by the people, not just one. So when they say your God, they're saying the one that you're worshiping Whatever there's, they're saying the Lord, your God, meaning, okay, the Lord Jehovah is your God. That's who you're worshiping. So they want him, they want Isaiah to entreat that entity on their behalf, not their God. They're not saying our God. They're saying your God. So it lets us know clearly, not everyone's on the same page when it comes to worshiping. Verse five. So the servants of, Hezekiah, of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. So the previous verse was. The message they were being given to take to Isaiah, now they've made it to Isaiah with the message from the king. Verse 6, and Isaiah said to them, thus you shall say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. So now Isaiah is giving them a message and he's, tell, and he's using this sort of same, um, using sort of the same language they are. He's saying, your master letting them know King Hezekiah may be the king and their master, but that's not who he calls master. Again, just like how one person may say Baal is their Lord, um, but another one may not. Someone else in the same Bible will, re will refer to another entity as the Lord. Lord is just the English word for it, but there's lots of different names to who people are worshiping as the Lord, their God. So uh, now Isaiah is giving them an answer telling them um, to, to go back to the king and tell him, don't be afraid of what's happening. Um, and saying that the king of Assyria and the servants are blaspheming uh, the Lord that Isaiah refers to as the Lord. Verse 7, surely I will send the spirit upon him. And, oops, sorry, hit the wrong button there. Okay, so verse 7, surely I will send the spirit upon him and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. So this uh, affirms that if you're going to believe this is the Lord, that same Lord is the same one that, again, is dispatching 
evil spirits. We and we've read previously where um, those evil spirits were sent out to distress um, Saul, the first king, human king of the Israelites, um, when it was time for David to assume the throne. But then we just read previously, um, in just a few chapters ago, where there were evil spirits being dispatched to go and trouble someone else. So if you're going to believe this is God Almighty, the Lord, the singular, all God, then you'd have to also believe that the Lord uses demons, or at least evil spirits, I guess would be better said, to um, on, um, to go out and work on people and trouble people and distress people and even um, cause them to make the wrong moves. So if that's the case, though, how can that same Lord blame the people for doing the things they do that are considered sinful if it's the Lord who sent the demons or evil spirits to uh, influence them to do it? But it is how it reads, so let's keep reading. So but what's being said there is that another evil spirit uh, is going to be sent to uh, with um, and cause the king of Assyria to hear a rumor and turn back away from um, going after the land uh, and attacking it. Verse 8. Then the Rabshake returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he heard that he had departed from Lachish. So just like the um, uh, rumor that was, uh, just like the prophecy that Isaiah had given to the people who were sent, it seems to be coming, past, coming true that um, the king of Assyria has turned back from attacking an area of the kingdom of Judah. And um, because he heard a rumor and is gone to go fight in another area, leaving Judah to fight it another day. Verse, uh, an area called Libna here. Verse 9, and the king heard concerning Taraka, king of Ethiopia, look, he's come out to make war with you. So he again sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, so not only is the Assyrian force, not only are the Assyrian forces facing um, uh, trouble, um, resistance from the people in Libna, but he's also hearing a rumor that um, the Ethiopian king is resisting. So they're going to fight with him also named Taraka here in this verse. And as always, please forgive me if I mispronounce any of these names. So now verse 10, here's what Hezekiah says. The, um, I'm sorry, this is the message that's being sent to Hezekiah from the king of Assyria. Now that he's turned back from attacking uh, king Hezekiah and Judah to go deal with what's happening and uh, with what he's heard about the Ethiopian king and dealing with the Libna front. He's saying, okay, well, I'm going to go fight those battles fronts. But in the meantime, send this message to the king of Judah, Hezekiah. And there's the message, verse 10. Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. So now uh, we probably um, take in as more blasphemy the fact that he's... Um, letting the king of Hezekiah, I'm saying, letting King Hezekiah know. He's giving him a message saying, don't trust in God. No matter what you've heard, presumably from Isaiah, since that's where he heard it from, he's saying, don't trust in that message. Don't trust in uh, the God that you're leaning on to save you. He's not going to save you. And he's saying, um, letting him know that Jerusalem is going to be taken by him, by the Assyrian uh, forces. Verse 11, look, You've heard what the kings of Assyria 
have done the all lands by utterly destroying them and shall you be delivered so um basically a threatening message is what's being delivered to king hezekiah from the assyrian forces letting them know look around and see nobody's been able to stand against me i've taken down this area and that area and just because i've turned back from you from for now jerusalem don't worry and don't trust in god that you're going to be saved because i'm coming back for you verse 12 have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed gozan and haran and Rezeph and the people of Eden who were in Telassar. So I don't know if that's the same Eden as in the Garden of Eden. Maybe it is. Don't know. But um, what's being said here, though, is that all those different areas thought they could resist the Assyrian forces, too. But all those different areas have been taken. So just look around and see. Just like I took them, I'll take you, too, is what the Assyrian forces are, the message that the Assyrian forces are passing on to uh, King Hezekiah. Verse 13, where's the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, and the king of the city of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Eva? So um, we read these same cities mentioned previously. Um, it's the same message saying, where are those kings that thought they could resist? They're, they've all been defeated and taken. He's saying, you better look around, you better recognize none of them could defeat me, and you won't be able to either. Verse 14, and Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. So now again, Hezekiah has been humbling himself to go and seek help from on high and spreading out the letter that the messengers have delivered from the Assyrian forces. Verse 15, then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. So now let's take that bit by bit. So now he's praying and he's asking God for help. And I'm just, again, just saying God, because that's how it reads, whether I believe that's God Almighty or not. That's how it reads. So that he's praying for help. But notice what he says, the one who dwells between the cherubim. That's the same imagery that's set up for what's called the Ark of the Covenant. There's the mercy seat with two angels on either side of it with their wings spread out covering the seat so that you can't see who's sitting on it presumably so you can't actually see god it's god's um actual physical presence or at least visual presence is being obscured or hidden by the angel's wings now it's very clear because that's how the ark of the ark of the covenant was designed with angels wings spread out covering it and yet you have preachers telling you angels don't have wings because people were made in the image of god and uh, people don't have wings, so angels don't have wings. Even though we just read it, and that the cherubim, which that's the design of the covenant, of the Ark of the Covenant, have wings. So again, believe what you want, or believe whatever somebody's telling you, or just believe what you're reading. It says it right there. So um, that's just a footnote, so that you can be aware. People will lie to you about what it says, even though they read it right along with you. We'll just turn around and, uh, and uh, contradict what we just read but clearly the angels or at least the cherubim if they're not angels they're cherubim have wings um and apparently they were created that way so anyway the prayer is that first recognizing that um the lord he's praying to is the only god uh, the one who made heaven and earth and then he continues with his prayer verse 16 incline your ear O lord and hear 
Incline your ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. So um, Hezekiah's prayer is asking God to take notice as if I guess he's assuming or praying, apparently God isn't watching and listening to what's being said. Otherwise, why isn't God reacting to it? Which would be a reasonable question when you consider why would the Lord be sending, like when the people went to colonize the area, why would the Lord be telling them, thou shalt not kill, but then turning around and telling them to murder and massacre the people who live there and then take their land, even though they were told, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet. Yet they've been told all of those things by that same entity that they're identifying as the Lord. Uh, so again, make sense of it how best you can or um, believe what you want to believe, but it's contradictory. It doesn't make sense. But here he's, uh, he's praying and saying, pay attention to what's going on, Lord. Look at what's happening, Lord. We need help. Uh, and then he ends it with saying they're reproaching you, saying they're, they're insulting you. They're threatening us, but they're insulting you. I guess trying to appeal to God to work on his behalf, uh, if for no other reason than the fact that the Assyrians are assault, uh, insulting and um, denying God's ability or willingness or power to help. Verse 17, truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands. So um, Hezekiah is no, not um, ignoring what's going on around him. He knows that the Assyrian forces have taken captive lots of different areas. And historically, they, they surely did. The same way the Roman Empire spread out over lots of different countries, the Assyrian Empire did too before them. And the Babylonians also before them. The Ethiopians, I'm sorry, the Egyptians also conquered lots of different areas, not just one singular country, one singular land. Um, so um, it's undeniable that the Assyrians are treading down and taking uh, countries, taking areas for uh, themselves to control them, to rule over them. Um, so he's letting the Lord know, uh, we can see what's going on. Do you? Are you watching what's going on? Are you hearing what's happening? Is what Hezekiah is saying to God, to the Lord. Verse 18, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they destroyed them. So now Hezekiah seems to be recognizing that the people are calling lots of different things God, all sorts of sort of totem poles and other phallic symbols, that that's what the people are worshiping. Um, and that those um, powers that they were trusting in have been broken down, torn down, and thrown into the fire. Uh, sometimes we've even read where the new each successive king would do that, would tear down the different um, phallic symbols and burn them and turn, try and turn the people back to worshiping one singular entity. But then the people would always seem to re repeatedly revert back to uh, many different religions. That's what they seem to be doing. It's called idolatry, but in reality, and at least in modern times, it's basically religion. It's lots of different religions in uh, the area, not just one. Verse 19, now therefore, O Lord, our God, I pray, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. So Hezekiah is saying, uh, begging God basically to prove God's self to flex and show the people who really has power, who really has authority. 
And God here, capitalized, is being translated in English to God from the word Elohim. But again, the word Lord is being translated from the name or word Jehovah or Yehovah again, whichever you prefer to pronounce it as. Um, so basically saying, prove that you're the one, show them you're the one real God, the true God, not these other entities that other people are worshiping, even people in their own area. Verse um, 20, then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah saying, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because you prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I've heard. So um, now here's the supernatural event, how, why he's called a prophet. Isaiah seems to even know what the prayer was that Hezekiah made, even though he went privately to the house of the Lord, as it's called, and spread out the threat and prayed there. Somehow Isaiah knows what the prayer was all about and is now answering uh, the prayer or not even answering the prayer, prayer, returning a message of an answer to the prayer uh, from the Lord to Hezekiah. Um, verse 21, this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. The virgin daughter of Zion has despised you, laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. So um, this is the message that Hezekiah is getting from Isaiah the prophet. And um, it's really a message, um, it seems, directed at the king of Assyria letting uh, but it's being given to hezekiah and i think what it's saying is that isaiah does have supernatural powers or is in touch with the same entity that hezekiah is praying to because he's returning the message basically of what hezekiah prayed he's um uh repeating basically the prayer back to hezekiah letting him know your prayer was heard because a supernatural the, the message has been passed on to isaiah supernaturally and here's the answer to what you prayed secretly verse 22 whom have you reproached and blasphemed against whom have you raised your voice and lifted up your eyes on high against the holy one of israel so um it's uh sounds like it's the message is to let the assyrian king know those are fighting words you've made threats not against another person another human being You've actually threatened God. So um, that's not a wise thing. Verse 23, by your messengers, you've reproached the Lord and said, by the multitude of my chariots, I've come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter the extremity of its borders to its fullest forest. So um, the boasting is what's being repeated back here of what the Assyrian king did, um, the boasting that he did, saying how big and bad he is at conquering lands and taking property, uh, taking property from other countries and other nations. Um, Lord here, by the way, is capital L, but then lowercase O-R-D. And it, in English, is being translated from the word Adonai uh, in Hebrew. So um, is that a name? Is it a title? I don't know. I'm not a linguist, but um, just so you notice, the translation to Lord in English is translated from many different words. And this is just one more example of it. Uh, but the message is that the boasting is going to uh, cost you. Verse 24, I've dug 
And as a, verse 24 is continuing the um, boasting of what the Assyrian king did. Uh, I've dug and drunk strange water, and with the soles of my feet, I've dried up all the brooks of defense. So again, it's more of the boasting that the Assyrian forces did and how powerful they are in taking land and taking uh, territory from other nations, even water that wasn't theirs because it belonged to another nation, but they conquered it and took it and now it's theirs. Same thing with the land. Verse 25, did you not hear long ago how I made it from ancient times that I formed it? Now I've brought it to pass that you should be for crushing fortified cities into heaps of ruins. So now it seems there's a turn in the message that the Lord is saying that this is the message for the Assyrian king, that the Lord is the creator of all, the one who originated it all, and even created the Assyrian for the purpose of going through the land and conquering it, different countries, different areas, including um, eventually Judah and Israel and taking people captive and relocating them. Here it's being said that it's the Lord that's behind it all by not just the um, the um, the victories, but also the defeats. It's the Lord that's set the Assyrians in the position to be able to defeat all of those countries. Um, verse 26, therefore their inhabitants had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field and the green herb as the grass on the housetops and grain blighted before it's grown. So um, again, the message here is still talking about how the Assyrian forces were able to defeat all those other places. It's because according to the message, the Lord made it that way, made it so that those other areas would be just like grass that gets mown, not able to resist those blades. They are helpless against what forces are going against them because the Lord set them up that way. The same way the grass is set up to be mowed down. The message is the Assyrian is set up to do the mowing, to mow, up, mow down those different areas. Verse 27, but I know your dwelling place. You're going out and you're coming in and your rage against me. So now it gets down to the message directly to the Assyrian king and forces and how it offends the Lord that the rage that they're ex expressing isn't against one of those other countries that they're warring against and defeating, but instead against God Almighty. And again, they're saying it's because it's their God who they're identifying as God to them. Um, verse 28, because your rage against me and your tumult have come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle on in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way which you came. So um, the message here is that just like I led you to those other countries to conquer them, now I'm going to treat you like a horse and put a bit and bridle on you and lead you to another place, lead you back to your own land from which you came. So in the big picture sense of it all, it seems to be saying that the Lord is behind it all, behind the, the victories and the defeats, and behind the victories for Judah and Israel, but also behind the victories for the Assyrian forces and leading everyone, all those kings, uh, into whatever victories and defeats that they end up facing. Verse 29, this shall be a sign to you. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself, and in the second year what springs from the same. Also in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. So here's the prophecy that's being delivered from uh, Isaiah, that 
for the next three years, you're going to do all right. You're going to be able to um, reap and sow, plant and grow and sustain yourself on what it is you're doing agriculturally. You're going to be okay for the next three years. Uh, verse 30, and the remnant who have escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. So now the people of the kingdom of Judah are being uh, assured a victory or at least um, a, not a total defeat in that they'll be able to stay where they are, uh, eat and drink of their own place, their own um, whatever grows and whatever they're able to cultivate there on their own that they're going to be okay for the next few years and also be able to be um, planted where they are. So they won't just be uprooted where they are, but instead they'll be able to stay where they are and put down roots and not just be swept away. Uh, but it's just for those three years so far. Verse 31, for out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and those who escape from Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So, um, not everyone in Judah is going to be saved, but instead a remnant, meaning a small portion of it, um, a minority portion of it, not everyone. Um, but there'll be enough left to so that the whole people, the whole nation won't die off. There'll be enough left of the people of Judah to remain there in the area um, and take root and be okay while they're there, still not displaced from where they were. And that it's the uh, Lord's zeal for the land, um, the Lord's attentiveness to the land and the people thereof that's going to accomplish it. Um, let's see. Verse, hit the wrong button again. Verse um, 31, where are we at? Let's see. Verse 32. Therefore thus, the, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria. He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shield, nor build nor build a siege mound against it. So now this is the message um, directly for the for Hezekiah about the Assyrian king and forces. Basically a message of reassurance that you're gonna be all right, that the king of Assyria is not about to go in and take you um, and um, or build a siege mound against you like hap what happened after Jesus' ministry uh, around 70 AD where Jerusalem was surrounded and besieged and the people starved out and there was woe to those who were pregnant and nursing babies because uh, the pregnancies were often ended with women uh, eating their children and eating their placenta and not even sharing it because people were just that desperately hungry um, so that's not what's going to happen now. As, um, the Hezekiah is being given the message that you're going to be all right, that the Syrian king right now isn't about to take you and do y'all in. Verse 33, by the way that he came, by the same shall he return, and he shall not come to the city, says the Lord. So the finish, the wrapping up the message of the prophecy that Isaiah is giving to Hezekiah is that don't worry, the king of Assyria is not about to get you. Uh, verse 34, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. So um, not because of Hezekiah's prayer, apparently, that's not what's um, going to move the Lord to help him out. But instead, the legacy promise that was given to David and um, 
that he'd have a remnant to remain on the throne. It says, I think it said forever. Um, uh, but I guess in the spiritual sense, it was forever because Jesus came through that lineage. And as Christians, we believe he is the king forever. So in that sense, that promise, that prophecy is fulfilled. Um, and I guess for that reason, that would be one more reason why um, Jerusalem wasn't going to be completely trampled, taken and destroyed and the people completely wiped out because there were, there were those um, prophecies, promises, if you prefer, uh, given to David. And that's what it's saying there uh, for David's sake, because of those um, promises that were given to David, that's the same David and Goliath David, um, that for the, that reason is the reason that the Assyrians won't just completely wipe out Jerusalem and the people who live in it. Again, not because of Hezekiah's prayer or because the people are in desperate need or because the Assyrians boasted against um, God, but instead, just because according to the narrator here, or at least according to the message that was given to King Hezekiah, it's for God's own sake that um, the, the Assyrians are not going to be able to um, take the city of Jerusalem. Verse 35, and it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. So um, a supernatural rescue, it seems, happened here. Um, that in the middle of the night, it seems, it's saying the angel of the Lord. And it's uh, in some versions of the Bible, it's lowercase a for angel. and some, it's the capital A for angel. Um, the only way that I understand it, or the way I understand it, is that people believe, scholars, I guess, believe that when it says the angel of the Lord, it means the Lord. Uh, but it can't mean the Lord and be consistent with what we as Christians know New Testament says about the Lord. It says that no one has seen God uh, or seen God's form or heard God's voice at any time. And yet uh, we see again and again, like we've read before throughout the Old Testament so far, people have said that they've had interactions with the Lord. So again, reconcile it as best you can. As a Christian, I'd say we're supposed to lean on what it is Christ says, since he's the one we believe brought the message to us directly from God, regardless of all these other supernatural events that people experience throughout the Bible, um, according to what it reads in the Gospels, none of these were um, God Almighty. They couldn't have been. It's just not consistent. It's contradictory. And not only that, there was something Jesus said, all who came before me were thieves and robbers, is what Jesus says in the gospel ministries. So um, it can't be that this is God Almighty. It could be it's supernatural. It could be some other entity that has power to do those sort of things, but it can't possibly be God Almighty. Um, if for no other reason than the fact that, again, the Ten Commandments, one of the big ten is thou shalt not kill, and yet the people were given commandments to go out and kill and massacre again and again and again. So it's completely inconsistent. And then not only that, We've read again and again that there were different covenants and promises that were made that were identified as forever, sort of like uh, circumcision. It's a it's a it's a covenant forever, as it says, or the burnt sacrifices and animal sacrifices, and they were laid out as statutes forever. Yet they're not forever. People aren't still doing them, 
And not only that, other religions since then have contradicted them and said, oh, that's all been done away with. They go by what Paul, for instance, says in the New Testament after Jesus' ministry, which, by the way, Jesus didn't say. Jesus didn't say those things were done away with at all. In fact, Jesus said the exact opposite, that he didn't come to change even one jot or tittle from the law. That lets us know, I believe, that the law that Jesus refers to are those, again, those Ten Commandments, not all those statutes and ordinances and dogma that people cooked up later, that religion cooked up later and attached to the Ten Commandments as law and have people trying to abide by it and make sense of it. Not at all. Jesus didn't change any of those big ten is my understanding of it. Because otherwise it just doesn't make sense that those things were considered ordinances forever and yet they've been canceled right there in the Bible thousands of years ago. Why wouldn't God, if they were meant to be for if they were meant to be temporary, why wouldn't God just say, You're to do this for now? Or you're to do this until I send the Christ, or you're to do this until I give you further word. But instead it says forever. So forever is forever. So that means if they were doing it back then, the animal sacrifices, all those different ordinances, are like um, if you're on your period, you're not supposed to touch anything holy. You're not supposed to touch another person. If you do, you make them unclean and you have to do the animal sacrifices to make yourself clean. And those people have to make the sacrifice to make themselves clean just for touching you or touching anything that you touched that became unclean because you were on your period when you touched it. All of that stuff was forever. We read through it. Those are supposed to be forever. That means if they were doing them back then, you're supposed to be doing them now. So if a Bible thumper tells you everything from Genesis to Revelation is what you're supposed to be abiding by, then why aren't they abiding by that? It's because it's contradictory and it doesn't make sense. Or like we read, like I just said, Jesus tells us all who came before him were thieves and robbers and the sheep did not hear them. If we're Christians and Christ's sheep hearing the master's voice and following what Christ says, then we have to follow what he says and not embrace everything else that's in the Bible that contradicts what he says. Believe what you want, but it just doesn't make sense um, that something would be considered forever and then not be forever if it's directly from God. But again, we're just reading it. Verse 36, so Sinatra, uh, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home and remained in Nineveh. So after the big massacre, not sure what it is that did it. It's saying the angel of the Lord did it, went out and killed 185,000 of the Assyrian forces in the middle of the night. I don't know. I mean, it doesn't say how, like a sword or a pestilence or a, like a, a plague went through, but they're all dead and the corpses are there. So if we're to believe it, uh, something killed all of those people. And the, the narrator is giving it to the Lord that's behind it that did it. And it was enough, at least according to the narrative, that it turned the king of Assyria back. Sinatra, it is the king of Assyria. Uh, I guess seeing uh, six figures of death in his company would do it. So he's turned back. But it didn't say an army did it to him, and not a human army anyway. So it's not like he turned in terror about another battlefront that he's facing. But presumably, seeing all those dead people, that was enough to make him go back. And he's turned back to return to Nineveh. That's the same Nineveh that's mentioned in the uh, book of Job, not Job's, sorry, uh, with Jonah, with the whole uh, great fish that swallows him up and him being sent to Nineveh with a message. It's that same Nineveh that's considered the home or capital city 
of the Assyrian king at this point. Verse 37, now it came to pass as he was worshiping in the temple of Nisroch, his god, that his sons Adramalek and Sherezer struck him down with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Asaradon, his son, reigned in his place. So if I remember right, Ararat is uh, in modern-day Turkey. That's another country in the, you know, same Turkey as in modern times. But that's also the same spot where, according to the Bible, the ark, I'm sorry, not the ark, the, um, yeah, the ark, Noah's ark, not the ark of the covenant, but Noah's ark, after the flood, after the water was on overall the land for those, I think, 160, 150, 60 days after it all receded, that's where the ark came to rest at, and that same Mount Ararat, if I remember right. Um, and so now that he's back in his own land, he's praying to his own God, and his God's name there is Nisroch. So one more example that's in the Bible, that there's worship of a God that's not God Almighty, but it's still been referred to as God. And also, God in English, with the lowercase g, is still being translated uh, from the word Elohim, which is the same word God with a capital G was translated from to the English word God. So again, it, whether it's uh, being addressed as a title or um, a name, that's who uh, what the word God is being translated from. Um, so anyway, now he's been killed, taken out by his own two kids, two of his sons, killed him, and then fled to that same Ararat that we were just talking about. And now another son of his, named Sardon, has ascended to the throne in his place now that the king has been killed. Um, that was the last verse so um, of this chapter anyway. So that's where we'll end this reading. As always, thank you for joining me for The Naked Truth. And as always, I hope it's a blessing for you and that you'll join me again. I love you. Appreciate you. And I'll see you next time. Peace be with you.